When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions. Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate. How do I even negotiate? Luckily, a REMAX agent has answers. Hey, Brian, those are really good questions. They are? Thanks. It's my first time buying. I work with first-time buyers all the time. I got you. REMAX agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated. Welcome back to Pod Save the World. This is Tommy Vitor. Thank you all for tuning back in. We have a packed show this week. It's actually two separate interviews in two different parts. The first is a conversation with Peter Beinart. He's an associate professor of journalism and political science at the City University of New York. He's a great writer. He writes at The Atlantic, The Forward, all kinds of other places, a bunch of great books. We talked about the controversy this week about tweets by Congresswoman Ilhan Omar that were seen by many critics as anti-Semitic. We talked about why Peter's views on her conversation and the broader discussion around the role of APAC in our politics. Then Ben Rhodes and I sat down with Wendy Sherman, who is the former Undersecretary of State for Political Affairs, which is basically the number four ranking official of the Department of State. We talked about Wendy's role as a negotiator. She has negotiated the Iran deal with the Iranians. Back during the Clinton administration, she went to North Korea to negotiate with the North Koreans. She knows what it's like to be inside the room. And we thought that she would just be an invaluable person to talk to as Donald Trump heads into his second major summit with Kim Jong-un. We also talked about her new book, Not for the Faint of Heart, which is a bunch of great lessons from her time in government. I think you'll really enjoy this episode. So with no further ado, here is the conversation with Peter Biner. Okay, Peter, it has been an exhausting week in the uh, ongoing war that is Twitter. Thank you for jumping on the phone to talk through it. I really appreciate it. I'm going to walk through the latest controversy with Ilhan Omar, and we'll just sort of go from there. So on February 10th, this started when Glenn Greenwald tweeted about the GOP leader Kevin McCarthy threatening punishment for Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib over their criticisms of Israel. She responded, Congresswoman Omar responded, it's all about the Benjamin's baby, which is a reference to $100 bills and or a Puff Daddy song. Then a reporter from The Forward tweeted, would love to know who Ilhan Omar thinks is paying American politicians to be pro-Israel, though. I think I can guess. Bad form, Congresswoman. That's the second anti-Semitic trope you've tweeted. Omar responded and quote tweeted the tweet, APAC. So on Monday, she apologized and said, anti-Semitism is bad. I'm grateful for Jewish allies and colleagues who are educating me on the painful history of anti-Semitic tropes. And I unequivocally apologize. At the same time, I reaffirm the problematic role of lobbyists in our politics, whether it be APAC, the NRA, or the fossil fuel industry. That came after considerable pressure from Democrats and Republicans, including Nancy Pelosi. I should also note that Omar has previously offered what, you know, read to me as a pretty heartfelt apology for a 2012 tweet where she wrote that Israel has hypnotized the world. May Allah awaken the people and help them see the evil doings of Israel. Hashtag Gaza, hashtag Palestine, hashtag Israel. I think basically she said she was reacting to the ongoing war in Gaza at the time and didn't realize how loaded the term hypnotized was. And, you know, I thought offered a pretty sincere, thoughtful response to that. So with that, my first question was just, what did you make of Congresswoman Omar's tweets and the subsequent controversy? So I think 
it is totally legitimate to talk about the role that APAC and associated organizations play in shaping the American debate about Israel. As it happens, APAC doesn't actually give money to politicians, but APAC basically has kind of associated political action committees that made up of APAC members that do, and that does play a significant role in the American-Israel debate. On the other hand, I, there is this long history about the idea that Jews secretly control government with money. Mm-hmm. So when you talk about the role of what is perceived to be a Jewish organization, APAC, even though it's not officially a Jewish organization, I think you do need to be a little bit more careful than when you talk about, let's say, the fossil fuel industry or the NRA, because which doesn't have that whole historical baggage, mm-hmm. right? Yes. Um, and so I guess I would say that I thought that Ilhan Omar's tweets were a little bit a flip, given uh, the historical baggage that this conversation had, and I think that I was glad she apologized for it. On the other hand, in the range of sins of bigotry and even anti-Semitism that we have seen in the Trump era, I think this was a very, very minor one, and the attack was, and her, to my mind, were both disproportionate and, I think, to significant degree, disingenuous. Yeah, I read the tweets and I cringed. Um, They felt way too flippant. There were a lot of people I follow on Twitter, some Jewish, some not, who were sincerely hurt by the suggestion that, you know, you just referenced uh, that there's some sort of a cabal of Jews controlling politics or that Jewish money is somehow controlling our political process. That's not accurate. It's not fair. It's hurtful to a lot of people. I do think, unfortunately, the controversy around the statement maybe obscured a bigger question, which is APAC is an incredibly powerful lobbying group in Washington, right? I mean, it seems like sometimes there's a suggestion that it's unfair or wrong to point that out in the way you might point out that, say, the NRA is powerful. Do you feel like there's a double standard there? I think one has to be careful and nuanced about this because of the historical baggage. But that said, it's also important for people to talk about this. And people inside the Jewish community, you know, talk about this all the time. Look, to understand APAC, you have to understand that the organized American Jewish community essentially was too disorganized and powerless to pressure the American government in the 1930s and 40s at a time when European Jews were being destroyed. And out of that sense of collective failure of a previous, less assimilated, less well-organized, less prosperous Jewish community has come this very, very strong ethos that exists in parts of the American Jewish community that the organized American Jewish community should be organized to participate and wield power in the political arena so that nothing like that can ever happen again. This, this is the sub, I, I speak as someone who spent a lot of time in APAC meetings in the course of my life. This is the, essentially the subtext of the way APAC operates. Mm-hmm. There's nothing wrong with that. APAC is a very well-organized group, which essentially uses the American Jewish community, which is a, a wealthy, biomarge, and articulate, critically articulate community, um, and to some degree pro-Israel Christians, to have a very, very strong impact on the Israel debate, especially in Congress. And that limits president's ability to put pressure on the Israeli government. So all of that, it seems to me, is a very legitimate conversation, especially if you believe, as I do, and as Ilhan Omar believes, that American policy towards Israel 
is bad for Palestinians because it basically turns a blind eye to some really terrible human rights abuses, and is also ultimately bad for Israel because essentially America ends up accepting an Israeli occupation of the West Bank that puts Israeli democracy in peril. Mm-hmm. What about ism is the most boring conversation in all of politics, and it's like the go-to for Twitter. But I do think it's worth noting that during the campaign, Kevin McCarthy, the same person who started this whole thing by attacking Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar, he tweeted that George Soros, Tom Steyer, and Mike Bloomberg, three Jewish billionaires, were trying to buy the election. I mean, isn't that pushing the sort of same anti-Semitic trope that she is accused of promoting? And do you think that the backlash to Kevin McCarthy's tweet was as significant or was she treated more harshly by the body politic? She was treated more harshly. I mean, you, you have that she was denounced by the entire House Democratic leadership. And, um, you know, you mentioned McCarthy, but look, Donald Trump's record of saying things that flirt with anti-Semitic tropes at least as much as Elon Omar's is a really long one. I remember he went before the Republican Jewish Coalition in late 2015 and basically said, you're not going to support me because you don't want my money and you want to control politicians with money. I mean, that was an even more kind of brazen, yeah. you know, invitation of this stereotype, not to mention Trump's final ad, which had, you know, three Jews, Lloyd Blankfein, George Soros, and Janet Yellen, and talked about, you know, special interests, global special interests to control Washington. I mean, Trump has a, has a pretty long history of this. So there are definitely people who sincerely were upset by Ilhan Omar and criticized Ilhan Omar and have criticized Donald Trump and criticized Kevin McCarthy. But there's also a very large group, particularly of Republicans, who didn't really criticize Donald Trump or Kevin McCarthy. And for them, I think the issue is not really the flirtation with anti-Semitism. What upsets them about Ilhan Omar is not this tweet, really. What upsets them about Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib is that they, have the, they could potentially shift the contours of the Israel debate and create more space for a more fundamental criticism of American policy towards Israel. And that, I think, is what really worries those people. And I think that needs to be distinguished from the problematic nature of this particular tweet. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, there are a lot of people criticizing or or hurt by Ilhan Omar's tweet. They were acting and speaking out in good faith. I think Kevin McCarthy was totally bad faith political. I mean, I, I think you'd have to be naive to separate out the fact that Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib are Muslim women, and they both support the BDS movement, which the Israeli government and basically the whole U.S. Congress, besides them, uh, fiercely opposes. Not surprisingly, the first, well, actually surprisingly, the first bill passed by the Senate basically included language designed to stop the BDS movement in its tracks. I mean, can you remind us what BDS is and what you make of it as a movement? Because I know you've written some interesting things recently about BDS and, and what you make of that S1, the anti-BDS legislation. Sure. So BDS stands for Boycott Divestment Sanction. It's a movement that arose out of Palestinian civil society in 2005. The date, the time, the date is significant because the, the, the Second Intifada, which was a kind of significantly violent uprising by Palestinians, um, which included a lot of terrorism against civilians, ended in 2004. And there was a, the Palestinians were searching for some new strategy to oppose Israeli policy, and indeed perhaps to oppose Israel's existence as a Jewish state itself, and hit on this notion, which for them was modeled on the anti-apartheid movement, of basically a global kind of boycott, international economic pressure on Israel. The BDS movement has three plans. It basically says Israel must be boycotted and sanctioned in other ways until Israel leaves the territories that it conquered in 1967, the West Bank and Gaza Strip in particular, and East Jerusalem. Second, that it must provide equality for its Palestinian citizens inside 
the green line, with the, the 67 lines, and third, that it must accept and support the right of return of Palestinian refugees who left their homes during Israel's War of Independence between 1947 and 1949. So what do I think about this? First of all, I think it's important to acknowledge that the BDS movement is nonviolent, right? That I do not believe that Palestinians can reasonably ex- be expected to sit back and accept an Israeli occupation in the West Bank that denies them the most basic of human rights, right? And we have long rightly said in the Jewish community and elsewhere that Palestinians should not oppose that with violence. So this is a nonviolent strategy. And it's a strategy that is a secular strategy and speaks in the language of human rights and international law. On the other hand, it's not a movement that really respects the idea of Jewish self-determination. When critics of the BDS movement say, this is not a movement that really accepts the notion of a Jewish state within any boundary, there is some truth to that. Because when the way many of its leaders define equality inside Israel proper and their position on refugee return suggests to a lot of people, including me, that their vision is really either a secular binational state in all of the territory, Israel, West Bank, and Gaza, or a Palestinian state alongside a secular binational state, not a Jewish state. So if you are someone who believes that there is a value in a Jewish state, a certain kind of Jewish state, then the BDS movement is problematic for you, and it's problematic for me. I personally do boycott products from the West Bank settlement. I do not buy those products. But I would not support and do not support any boycott that is a boycott of Israel itself, because in Israel itself, Israel's Arab-Palestinian citizens have, do have the right to vote. They do serve in the Knesset. They serve on the Supreme Court. So I think that there's an important moral distinction between the West Bank, where Palestinians have basically no rights, and Israel itself, where they're discriminated against but have some basic rights. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, sorry, this is going on too long. But no, no. But it's a complicated conversation. Yeah. I do not believe that the BDS movement is inherently anti-Semitic because I understand, I mean, I'm a Jew. For me, even though I have a lot of problems with Israel does, Israel's creation has been an enormous blessing for the Jewish people. But I understand why Palestinians are anti-Zionist. I understand why, for them, the Jewish state has been largely a source of misery and discrimination. And for them, they would like not to have a Jewish state in which they are second-class citizens, even in the state of Israel itself, right? Even in the state of Israel itself, where Palestinian is a citizen, a Palestinian father can't say to his son, you're going to grow up to be the prime minister of this country, right? right? It's a state essentially built to privilege Jews. So while I'm opposed to the BDS movement, I would disagree with many of those in Congress, especially in the Republican Party, who say that it's an inherently anti-Semitic movement. It is a movement that comes out of the Palestinian experience, and I understand why Rashida Tlaib, for instance, given her own family history, supports it. And I don't believe it should be criminalized, because I believe that people have the right to engage in boycotts. The American Jewish community in the 1970s, when the Soviets were persecuting uh, Soviet Jews, engaged in all kinds of boycotts of the Bolshoi Barley and and other things in order to try to make great political change. I think boycotts are a legitimate political tactic, even if you happen to disagree with their goal. Mm -hmm. You've been writing, thinking about the U.S.-Israeli relationship, the U.S. polity towards Israel for a long time. And, you know, I think like a lot of people observed the way Netanyahu and his government have shifted further and further to the right. It feels like there's basically no support for a two-state solution or peace process anymore. Settlement construction has been supercharged for years. The humanitarian situation in Gaza is horrific. I mean, Shouldn't policymakers be criticizing these positions or at least talking about them more honestly than we currently do in Washington? 
Absolutely. And one of the first steps is for policymakers to actually go and see for themselves. You know, one of the things that APEC is a really smart organization, and one of the things they do is they take a ton of members of Congress to Israel. And those people are really impressed by Israel. And I understand why. I mean, Israel's a really impressive place. I love being in Israel. You know, it's a very impressive country. And you see things from the Israeli Jewish point of view. But it's a little bit like, you know, going on a tour of New York and hearing a lot about police relations with the African-American community and never talking to any black people, right? Mm-hmm. Once you actually go to spend time with Palestinians in the West Bank, it is a shocking experience because Palestinians live as non-citizens under Israeli control. That means that they're not even theoretically entitled to any of the basic human rights that we take for granted, like due process, free movement, the right to vote for the government that controls their lives. And when you see that up close, it's a very powerful experience. And, um, I think that we need more politicians who have maybe the sensitivity that Ilhan Omar did not show in that tweet, but also the courage to speak out openly about the human rights realities in Israel and also about, you know, Israel's Declaration of Independence says this will be a country that pursues freedom, justice, and peace as envisaged by the Hebrew prophets. Those are very meaningful words for me. There's no way you can go to see what Israel's doing in the West Bank and believing that it is living up to the spirit of its own founding documents. So the Jewish community, the organized Jewish community, unfortunately, often, I think, creates an environment where politicians don't feel entirely politically safe to explore this issue and speak their mind. And I think that's really unfortunate, because I think that we would be better off as a country, Palestinians would be better off, and ultimately Israel would be better off, too. Yeah, I mean, support for Israel used to be seen as as a given, I think, and completely bipartisan. And I just, I don't know that that's the case anymore. A, a lot of it has to do with the policies in the West Bank and Gaza. And I think you've written about this extensively in your most recent book, The Crisis of Zionism. But it also has to do, I think, with Netanyahu's decision to intervene in the 2012 election and basically endorse Mitt Romney. Bibi's yeah. current campaign posters are a gigantic picture of him and Trump together. I think it's interesting and good that you hear Democrats increasingly expressing concern for the Palestinian people, but I don't think that is a net good for Israel if they want continued U.S. support from Democratic politicians on both sides. I mean, do you think we're about to see a major political shift in the way Israel is discussed or support for Israel? Not in the Republican Party. I think think support for the Israeli government basically doing whatever it wants is pretty strong in the Republican Party. In the Democratic Party, I think what you see is now a pretty significant gap between where Democratic politicians are and where Democratic grassroots activists are. Whereas there's been a real shift in public opinion and a younger generation, including a love of Jews, a younger Jews, who want America to take a more forthright critical position of Israel on Israel because of the human rights issues and precisely because you say First, they grew up identifying Benjamin Netanyahu with George W. Bush and Dick Cheney, right? Um, And now they identify him with Donald Trump. So he represents many of the values that they most oppose, kind of, you know, bigotry, militarism. And so the question is whether there will be a politics. I think this issue is a little bit like where the Republican Party was on trade before Donald Trump came along, which was that Republican politicians were much more pro-free trade than Republican voters. And Donald Trump saw that opening. I think the interesting question, I think, will be whether a candidate in 2020 in the Democratic nomination seizes that opening and distinguishes themselves from the rest of the pack by taking a much more critical position on Israel. Bernie Sanders is really the only one so far who I think seems to be moving in that direction. He's even said things about 
positioning military aid to Israel, which was, as you know, not something that Barack Obama ever uh, discussed. And I suspect if he does that, we will see that it's a political winner for him. And that shifts the debate and, and shows other Democratic politicians where there is a political opportunity and the debate inside the Democratic Party could change pretty significantly. Yeah, ironically, by shifting back to the policy supported by George H.W. Bush and Republicans of old. He was the last president to really put pressure on Israel. Yeah. yeah. Last question for you, uh, and thank you again for your time. I mean, I would be remiss not to mention the fact that we are seeing a, a really troubling rise in anti-Semitism globally. Do you have a sense of if there's a singular driver of these incidents and if there are things our government or other governments or individuals generally should be doing to try to stop these incidents? Because it is scary. You're seeing it in places like France. You're seeing it in the U.S. I mean, it's it's pervasive. Yeah, that's complicated. You know, anti-Semitism is a phenomenon that has been able to mutate and take many, many different forms. I guess I would say this about the United States. There's a debate in the American Jewish community about how to fight anti-Semitism. People on the right essentially say, look, Donald Trump has a kind of mal-ethnically, racially, religiously nationalist vision of America, but the good news is we're in it, right? It's not just Christian America now, it's Judeo-Christian America. And we're white, mostly. Most American Jews are white. So, you know, why bite the hand that feeds us? Those people support, love Jews, and um, they have Jews in their families, even in the Trump case, and they support Israel. I think that's fundamentally wrong. I think, for me, at the core of being a Jew is what it says 36 times in the Torah, which is that we know the heart of the stranger because we were strangers in the land of Egypt. That to be a Jew is always to try to be in solidarity with the marginalized and the outcast, not only because it's the morally right thing to do, but also because it's the best thing for Jewish self-protection. And I think this, for me, is the deepest lesson of what happened in Pittsburgh. Look at what happened in Pittsburgh. Donald Trump was going on with this racist, anti-Latin American caravan stuff. And what happened? This lunatic in Pittsburgh decided that the Jews were to blame for that, Mm -hmm. right? And so, in a kind of roundabout way, Trump's anti-Latino bigotry turned into murderous anti-Semitism. For me, there's really a lesson there, which is that for our own self-protection, we have to be on the front lines defending all groups, Muslims, Mexican-Americans, others, who have been demonized by Donald Trump and his supporters, and that ultimately those will be our strongest allies in fighting anti-Semitism. And I think that's the debate that's happening inside the Jewish community today. That is a great lesson and great advice. Peter Beiner, thank you so much for talking with me through this. This is complicated stuff. It can feel fraught to discuss it on Twitter because uh, a lot of nuance and context is required to make your point, and a lot of people want to attack you in bad faith. So I thank you for, for joining me today. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Pod Save the World is brought to you by the UN Refugee Agency. The UN Refugee Agency, or UNHCR, responds to emergencies and provides long-term solutions for refugees. They provide aid in over 130 countries, including Ukraine, Syria, Afghanistan, and Sudan, where people are forced to flee from war and persecution at their greatest moment of need. UNHCR helps and protects refugees by providing food, shelter, medical care, and other life-saving essentials. The agency jumpstarts relief in three key ways. They transport core relief items stored in even the most remote areas of the world. 
They deploy expert emergency staff trained to help in crisis situations, and they transfer funds directly to support the emergency. Because of generous supporters and donors, UNHCR can scale up its response within 72 hours of a large-scale emergency. Your support helps provide life-saving aid for refugees whenever and wherever emergencies occur. Donate to USA for UNHCR by visiting unrefugees.org slash donation. That's unrefugees.org slash donation. The National Women's Soccer League kicks off March 16th on ION. It's a new Saturday night destination featuring the best players in the world. 25 Saturday nights, 50 matches, all season long on ION. Alan Frenchel Williams slips through. Here's a shot. It's in. This is a game changer for sports. Sabina takes a shot herself. Covers it home. Oh, my goodness. See the full schedule and find where to watch at IONNWSL.com. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What's the first thing you do if you had an extra hour in your day? Oh man, what would I do? Sleep would be nice. Yeah, yeah. Hang out with my daughter. I don't know. Take a nap, read a book. No, I wouldn't do a book. And I listen. I wish I would pick book. Yeah, but uh, listen, we all wish we had another hour in a day. A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. The question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? Whoa. My therapist is trying to get me to be still for five minutes a day. So much harder than it sounds. Yeah. Oh, yeah? There's too many videos to see. There will be a podcast in my ear. The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you to make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. If you're thinking of giving therapy a try, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Crooked World. Go today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Crooked World. And now for Ben Rhodes and my conversation with Wendy Sherman. I am honored to have in our studio here in Los Angeles, Wendy Sherman, the author of Not for the Faint of Heart, Lessons in Courage, Power, and Persistence, and frankly, one of the most experienced diplomats, not currently working for Donald Trump, <laughs> although, you know, all the, the really experienced folks are there. No, someone who has negotiated with, you know, adversaries, served in the Obama White House for the Clinton administration, just an incredible career. So we are so grateful that you are here today. Great to be with you and Ben. Tell me, thanks. So, I mean, you have this remarkable experience of not just working in government, but going to far-flung places to negotiate with people that have been called the axis of evil or on enemies lists uh, over time. You negotiated the Iran deal. You negotiated with North Korea. I was hoping you could kind of take us inside that experience a little bit. Like, you land in North Korea for <laughs> talks. What happens? Where do you go? Where do you sleep? What do you eat? What, like, who are the goons you're talking to? How does this work? North Korea is like, unlike any other place I've ever been in my life. It is pretty much a Potemkin village. Mm -hmm. Pyongyang is actually visually very beautiful because there are monuments all over the city to the leaders of North Korea and parks. You see people, but in the capital of Pyongyang, they are dressed when they know people are coming to visit. Uh. Uh, when I went there the first time with Bill Perry, who had been Secretary of Defense, and uh, President Clinton had asked him to do a North Korea policy review, and so a small team of us went to Pyongyang, we went to a rice paddy to see how the revolutionary workers were getting the job done with an ox cart uh -huh. with uh, signs along the paddy field 
uh, with revolutionary slogans on them, and sort of like at a campaign stop, an entire brass band in white band uniform at the other end of the paddy field <laughs> playing revolutionary songs. This was, of course, it really felt like, you know, I'd done a lot of presidential campaigns sure, and Senate yeah. campaigns. This felt like, you know, the advance team had yeah. arrived because they knew we were coming. It was very sad in many ways. It was sort of pathetic. We had a performance where they sang songs in English hmm. and had a electronic chiron across the top of the stage with the words in English to like my Clementine. Now, of course, everybody in the audience neither spoke, read, or understood English. <laughs> so it was for us. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. It's um, spontaneous eruption. Spon- spontaneous, yeah. but an extraordinarily, very much the hermit kingdom, yeah. a lot of buildings with no one in it. You don't control your schedule. I think Secretary Pompeo found that out. Yes, he, he did. He went to meet with... Uh, Kim Jong-un, only to not meet with Kim Jong-un. Yeah, you a long you don't get to decide. <laughs> that's amazing. So uh, you were conducting these talks on behalf of the Clinton administration. I mean, obviously, they didn't end their nuclear weapons program. To the contrary, they poured gas on the program and to this day. But what do you think that those talks accomplished? Like, what's the value of that kind of diplomacy, even when the long-term goal isn't achieved immediately? Well, I want to make sure people know the facts in this situation. During the Clinton administration... There were no nuclear weapons. There no, were no long-range ballistic missiles. In fact, there was enough fissile material, that's the stuff that goes inside of a nuclear weapon, for one or two nuclear weapons. But that fissile material had been produced when George Bush 41 was president. Mm-hmm. So during the Clinton administration, there was no progress mm-hmm. as such. Mm-hmm. The agreed framework, which was negotiated by Bob Gallucci, a great diplomat, foreign yeah. service officer, had a lot of problems, but it nonetheless kept their production of plutonium, one of the ways you produce material for a nuclear weapon, in check for the whole administration. And what we were negotiating towards the end, and what I got very involved in, was trying to stop them from testing long-range missiles. Mm-hmm. You may recall that in uh, 2000, we had a little bit of a presidential election <laughs> problem. Yes, we did. Uh, we thought we should brief the incoming administration on what we were working on. The presidential election sort of didn't keep getting over, didn't keep getting over, didn't get over till December. Wow. We thought that was a little late to try to make a transition. And President Clinton was trying to get peace in the Middle East, yeah. which also proved elusive. But we then proceeded after the Clinton administration to President Bush trying some things uh, found out that, in fact, uh, the North Koreans had started a enrichment program in secret. Things went off the rails, and now we have a North Korea with many nuclear weapons and the missiles to deliver them. Yeah. Well, you know, th- it's an interesting parallel to look at Iran. You know, as with when you were talking to North Korea, when you started leading the negotiations with Iran, they had not yet reached the point where they had a nuclear weapon, but they had a nuclear program. They had an enrichment program. They had a plutonium path potentially to a nuclear weapon. But the context was different, obviously, given that there were multiple parties in that. And I wonder, just to set it up, how would you compare the differences between kind of entering into the negotiation with the Iranians in the middle of the Obama administration as against what you were doing when you went to North Korea, as you described? Well, in both cases, even though there weren't other countries literally at the table in North Korea, having constant consultations with South Korea, Japan, and yeah. China, and Russia for that matter, 
was a critical part of the negotiations. And in fact, when Gallucci negotiated the agreed framework, the South Koreans and the Japanese were literally sitting in the next room Hmm. uh, so that there could be constant consultations. I think most listeners probably don't understand these negotiations. A lot of the work doesn't happen in the negotiating room. It's all the consultation, all the time that it takes. You know that then from your own experience, uh, particularly on Cuba, what it takes to do these things. So it was certainly different to have all the parties around the table Though I think one of the things that was clear in both instances is although there were other interests, other parties they could veto, nothing could get done without the United States of America. Yeah. And that was true in both circumstances. The North Koreans are more transactional. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, the Iranians are much more complex and sophisticated negotiators. So that is quite different. And obviously in North Korea... Uh, you do negotiations through translators, yeah. though there are now some North Koreans who speak good English, and uh, Madam Che speaks with everybody in English. In the Iran situation, when Ahmadinejad was president, Saidu Jalili was the negotiator. They spoke in Farsi. We spoke in English. It was very tortured. Yeah. <laughs> uh, during the Iran negotiations after Rouhani was elected, uh, Zarif took over. He'd lived in the U.S. for yeah. 30 years, and Every one of the negotiators spoke perfect English. Yeah. Well, it makes it easier. Um, save some time. Yeah. <laughs> that else. too. That too. Can't imagine. Uh, although it takes time with the Iranians. Uh, <laughs> yes. And uh, I think, I mean, not to make this too leading of a question, but um, oh, one ahead. of the things that struck me <laughs> in the Iran context when I was back in Washington and, and you were out leading your team is you put together this extraordinary team that was almost like a national treasure. It had scientists, you know, people who knew nuclear physics, it had sanctions experts, it had diplomats, it had communications professionals. Lots of lawyers. Lots of lawyers, right? (laughs) This huge team that had these constant negotiating sessions, and in between the negotiating sessions, they're back at the drawing board to come up with solutions to problems. And as someone who's looking at the North Korea negotiation today under Trump, it is kind of opaque, but I don't – all I see is Pompeo. All I see is occasionally – the occasional surprise statement uh, from the administration, the tweet from the president. What do you see, uh, looking at this with all your experience from the outside, in terms of, of who are the team of people that they have working on this, and how can they actually address the complexity of a nuclear negotiation with North Korea you know, without that kind of pickup team that you put together? Well, I think, to be slightly fair, they've gotten slightly better in Mm -hmm. that uh, Secretary Pompeo named Steve Began, who is a very talented, very capable, tough negotiator, was in the private sector for uh, Ford Motor Company for many, many years. He was on the NSC, uh, worked at state, worked up on the Hill. Mm -hmm. And uh, he's a smart guy, doesn't know Asian, didn't know North Korea, but he's tough. And he has put together a little team. I don't know all the people on it. Uh, he gave a speech recently at Stanford and laid out, uh, on his way to a meeting in Seoul, laid out sort of the context for the next uh, summit that the president's supposed to be having. Mm-hmm. And look, I supported the president having a summit yeah. because both he and Kim Jong-un think they're the only ones who matter. Yeah. So I thought, well, maybe they will be able to make a breakthrough in this very difficult circumstance, but only if it was well-prepared, yeah. there was a strategy. There, mm-hmm. To your point, there was a team. There yeah. was going to be follow-up. And, of course, none of that happened. Yeah. So to think that between the time the president said there was going to be a second summit and the summit was about – looks like about six weeks, uh, to think that you can do all you need to do 
uh, with a team that's just getting off the ground in yeah. six weeks is absurd. You yeah. don't think that love letters and tweets are sufficient? <laughs> yeah. yeah, you know, bromance is a wonderful thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But probably won't just do the job. I guess it's the opposite of toxic masculinity. So that's a, that's a step <laughs> yeah. forward oh for my. this, for oh this, <laughs> this yeah. president. Um, so the, the U.S. intelligence community said recently that Iran is still complying with the Iran deal, despite Trump pulling out of it. Um, the Europeans have been trying desperately to, to keep the deal alive by providing some economic benefit for the Iranians. One, did that surprise you that they, they would stay in the deal? And two, do you think that this deal can outlast the Trump administration? Really good questions. Yeah. I thought they would try to stay in the deal because they've invested a hell of a lot in it yeah. uh, because they want at least small and medium European companies to try to stay in. And because I talk about Iranians as hardliners and hard hardliners, <laughs> yeah. uh, not as moderates. And the hardliners who worked on this deal want to be able to survive. And uh, the hard hardliners got to step up when the U.S. pulled out because they could say, see, we told you not to trust the U.S. They don't respect us. They withdrew. Now we can go off and do every bad thing we want to do in yeah. the Middle East uh, with impunity. Uh, and so I think the hardliners are trying to hold the center in their country such as it is. And I think, uh, you know, in spite of having been called bad names by Secretary Pompeo from having meeting the Iranians since I left government. Oh, yeah. uh, nonetheless, my sense out of those meetings is that they'd like to try to hold on. If they think Trump will be there till the end of the administration, maybe they can keep going and then start again with a new administration. I think if they think that Trump is likely to be president for another four years after this term, mm -hmm. they will not stay in this deal. And what do you make of the European efforts to keep them in. I mean, it's challenging, right? When we've reimposed sanctions from the U.S., they're trying to find these kind of creative solutions to work around our sanctions. Do you think the Europeans, uh, how do you assess the efforts that they've made to date to try to keep this on, on life support? They've tried really hard. I think everybody understands this facility that was just set up recently will help with some of the humanitarian trade, but probably won't do a lot for real enterprise. Yeah. But at least it shows that the Europeans are making an effort. I think, you know, one of the things people haven't talked about, we all ought to be really careful about, is if the Europeans, our ostensibly best friends, yeah. our best allies, find a workaround to U.S. economic sanctions, yeah. what's that say? Yeah, yeah. This is a big deal. Yeah. Way beyond the Iran deal. Yeah. So yeah, it's that's quite not great. Not great at all. No. <laughs> no. Speaking of tough deals, what do you think the best possible deal is that Trump can get with North Korea. A lot of analysts I read seem to think that denuclearization, to the extent that that's a defined term, isn't feasible. Do you agree? Is there a best-we-can-get option that we should be shooting for at this point? You know, when President Obama said that we should work with Iran to ensure they never get a nuclear weapon, we didn't know how long that would take mm -hmm. or how many steps it would take to get there. Mm-hmm. I don't have a problem having the objective be the denuclearization of North Korea. That should be the objective. How we get there, what steps along the way, whether they're interim pieces to the deal, are quite likely, because this is pretty complex to do. As Ben pointed out, Iran never had nuclear weapons. And look how hard that was, right? right, right. This is many times more difficult, yeah. uh, because it's really the only th hand they have to play. Mm -hmm. Iran had other hands it could play. This is the only hand Kim Jong-un has to play is his nuclear weapons. And he plays it really well. Mm -hmm. So I think it's pretty tough. 
I think there will probably be interim steps along the way. Look, it's good they're not testing, however. They probably are far enough along that they can use computer simulations to do whatever they need to do now, and there are credible reports that they are continuing to build up their nuclear weapons production and their missile production. That's of great concern. I think what's going to be really interesting here is how this will all get sequenced, what the first steps might be, uh, what the president will be willing to do. It was interesting in the speech that Steve Began gave at Stanford. He said, we're willing to do this in parallel. And that is of concern to me because, yes, you can orchestrate and sequence steps so everybody can save face, but the person who has the bad behavior here is North Korea. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it's it's one of a few complex challenges the administration faces <laughs> from North Korea to Iran to Venezuela to China trade and, and on down the list. You know, you served in really the position that, you know, so people know the the job you were in as undersecretary of state was uh, kind of the number three job in the department, but really kind of the, the tip of the spear for the diplomatic corps of the department. And I, I'm wondering what you make of the kind of hollowing out we've seen of foreign service officers retiring. I think some of our listeners who follow this, you know, they, they're aware that there's been this exodus of diplomats. Some of them were purged under the kind of restructuring and reform that Tillerson was doing. Some, a lot of them have just kind of left because they either don't agree with the Trump administration or don't feel like their service is valued. Um, what is the cost of that to U.S. interests? You know, what... Why does it matter if we have all this experience walking out the door? I think for some people, they recognize intuitively, well, this must be a problem. <laughs> but I think kind of putting that into to perspective for folks might be helpful. First of all, I think, Ben, you were really generous to say what Tillerson did about reconstruction yeah, reform yeah, yeah, of the yeah, department. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think it was destruction, destruction yeah, yeah, of the department. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, he and I truly don't understand why. To day, totally yeah, yeah. baffling to Why would you day. come in and eviscerate your own workforce? Exactly. Yeah, and yeah. why would you push out 60% of the senior foreign service. These are folks who have served Republicans and Democrats. They've served people they agree with, people they don't agree with, but they took an oath to the United States of America, to the Constitution. It's just totally baffling to me. The result of that, however, is a State Department that doesn't have the capacity it should. I mean, one of the things I think about the potential of a second shutdown is I don't know how... Donald Trump goes off to a second North Korean summit if there's a second shutdown. Good point. Uh, It requires diplomats not only working on the summit itself, but working all around the world to reinforce what's going on at that summit. What diplomats do, uh, yeah, occasionally you go to a reception and drink a glass of wine, which is, I think, the perspective a lot of people have, what they think of. But most of the time, you are really doing tedious, difficult work to try to represent the interests of the United States of America. Yeah. And that's really tough to do when you've destroyed the workforce. I'm out here in California in part talking to students, and you know, I'm urging them to go into the Foreign Service, go into the Civil <clears throat> Service. I mean, look at those TSA workers, those FBI yeah. workers, all the folks who went to work even though they weren't being paid. I, yeah. I dare say a lot of us wouldn't go to work if we weren't being paid. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. 
Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. Hi, I'm Erin Ryan, a writer and host of the podcast Hysteria. And I'm Alyssa Mastromonaco, former White House Deputy Chief of Staff and also a host of Hysteria. And this week, we were asked to talk about Women's History Month. And on behalf of women everywhere, okay, fine. Our show Hysteria is about the way news and culture impacts women in America every week of the year. From the latest on reproductive rights to the ways pop culture handles women's stories. And not just because it's March, okay? We exist the other 11 months of the year, too. What? Don't... (laughs) Uh, You heard it here first. Don't even get us started on our exclusive YouTube series, This Fucking Guy, where we try to figure out how the worst people in America got to be so awful. So if you're looking for a pod that's by the ladies and for everyone, make sure to subscribe to Hysteria wherever you get your podcasts. Reclaim your time now that you can listen to four weekly ads-free episodes across Pod Save America and Pod Save the World. There's never been a better time to join Cricket's Friend of the Pod subscription community. The marketing people say that listening ads-free saves you up to two hours of ad listening each month. Imagine the possibilities. You know what you can do with two extra hours a week? You can listen to Listen to, two- to more podcasts. Exactly. Ah, two more episodes. Yeah. That's two more episodes. Yeah. Get more stuff in your brain. Yeah. Get more stuff in that more brain. stuff and content in there like, yeah, uh, like you're a foie gras goose. <laughs> <laughs> Become a member today. Go to crooked.com slash friends now to learn more. You know, one of the things, and again, uh, Wendy's book, uh, Not for the Faint of Heart, is something everybody should look at if they want to know about what it's like (laughs) to be in the front lines of these negotiations, but also just an extraordinary career that will have next acts as well. But, you know, you worked in politics and diplomacy. So you started in Maryland politics. You were a key aide to Barbara Mikulski, a longtime senator, worked on presidential campaigns, and then also had all these jobs in government. As, and by the way, if folks out there haven't heard of Barbara Mikulski, Google one of her floor speeches, watch yeah, it on YouTube. Yeah, She's yeah, a yeah. force of nature. You don't want to get in the way right. of Barbara Mikulski. As, as, yeah. as she says, <laughs> I was really lucky to run her first campaign for the U.S. Senate. She was the first Democratic woman ever elected in her own right. And as she said, she was a 25-year overnight success. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, well, given that experience, so, you know, we're obviously entering into a campaign season uh, where you see the debates are dominated by thus far, you know, healthcare and the shutdown, domestic issues. But given your experience straddling politics and foreign policy, you know, what are you looking for out of these Democratic candidates in terms of how they articulate not just criticisms of Trump, but, but an alternative approach to the world? You know, I'm now director of the Center for Public Leadership at Harvard and a professor of practice of public leadership. And the reason I decided to do that is because we have a leadership deficit around the world and a lot of the great energy for the future is coming from young people, whether those are the kids who took the tragedy of Parkland to Chicago and joined up with the Chicago kids who face violence every single day to try to get folks to register to vote and young people to vote, Mm -hmm. whether it is all the women who took to the streets and so many women who ran for office, uh, the diversity that's come into this midterm Congress. 
it's really important. And leadership should be about helping people to get through this staggeringly rapid technological and social change Mm -hmm. that we're all experiencing. This is going to be unlike anything I've ever lived through and much more profound, in fact, than the Industrial Revolution. What artificial intelligence will do to the labor market, what climate change will do, how it will increase the inequality uh, between the rich and the poor and the rich and the middle class for that matter. It's These are big challenges. And so leaders ought to help people navigate that, Mm -hmm. should have a vision for the future that's inclusive, that helps people get through that as opposed to really go for their fears and their grievances. Um, Much of what I think President Trump does is he just plays on people's sense of grievance. And it's not that people have grievances. They have legitimate grievances. But you try to solve those problems. You try to take them to a better place. Mm -hmm. And um, I really think the energy among young people to do that, that sense of hope and inspiration is is what it should all be about. Yeah. The three of us logged a lot of hours in the White House Situation Room many times. uh, Loved every moment. Against our will. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. loved every moment. Um, For you listening, I was a a JV backbencher. Like literally there's a a table and a backbench where the... With very little space in between. Very little space in between where people like me sat. But the two of you were at the table with powerful people making very important decisions. And you, in the book, Not for the Faint of Heart, you wrote this powerful chapter that you also adapted for Political Magazine about the challenge of wielding power as a woman in Washington. And one line that really jumped out at me was, women need to stop thinking that power is a dirty word. What did you mean by that? Women have a really strange relationship with power sometimes. We tend to be more comfortable, or at least traditionally, with informal rather than formal power. Years ago, I did a study when I was in social work school. I'm uh, trained as a community organizer, Reveille for Radicals and all that kind (laughs) of stuff. Solinsky. Yeah, Solinsky. So, And what I found out in that study of community organizations is they were most often started by women to get a light at a school crossing, safe drinking water, deal with something in their community. But as soon as the donors arrived or grants were funded, money Mm -hmm. showed up, somehow or other, you guys... Yeah, there we are. There you were in charge. And you (laughs) came to run the organizations we built. So I've tried to say to women, power is not in and of itself a bad thing. It's Mm -hmm. a great thing if it's used for good purposes. When I speak, without a doubt, the first three questions will be from guys in the audience. And then I'll stop and I'll say, I'm not taking any more questions. To one of you smart women, raise your hand. And you know what some of those women have told me, because we've talked about it a lot. They've said to me, well, I'm sitting there trying to think of a great question and how to frame the great question. Mm -hmm. So I don't just raise my hand. And I say, don't you understand? The guys raise their hands. They haven't a clue what they're going to ask. They just figure by the time they, the person comes to them, they'll think of something brilliant. They'll yeah. sound smart. Also true in the situation room. Also yeah. true in the situation room. Exactly my point. Exactly true. Same thing in the situation room. Well, you, uh, as a Maryland, uh, as someone rooted in Maryland politics, you know, the daughter of a Baltimore mayor, I think a lot of Americans saw a woman comfortable with her power extremely in a way that you know some people have never seen before really the last few weeks uh, just emerging as the the most comfortable person in the country wielding power mm. truly uh, what is it like to watch nancy pelosi in this latest act of a career, Fan- career? fantastic yeah. i mean i've known her for a long time obviously in her family her both her father and her brother were mayors of baltimore 
Uh, and it's interesting, both she and Mikulski, Jerry Ferraro, Barbara Kennelly, all went to all women's colleges. Hmm. And that's not true for everybody if, yeah. anymore. I started at a women's college as well, yeah. where women are expected to raise their hands. There is none of you guys are around. Yeah. So I think that watching Nancy, not only does she rock, <laughs> but she is just so clear. She's so skillful. She really said to those who doubted whether she should be the majority leader because she was the speaker because she was too old and she was the past, not the future, that if you want to get to the future, you better have somebody who knows how the hell to get there. And she certainly does. So I think a lot of listeners of the show are pretty young. And I think some of them wonder, should I go into foreign service? Should I join the intelligence community? Should I join the military? And my experience in government was working with a lot of cool powerful, dynamic people, right? Susan Rice, uh, Heather Higginbottom, right? Like Ben, Jake, all these like great people. But Ronan Farrow worked at the State Department before he was headhunting right, right. creepy executives in Hollywood. Blurbed but, my book. I'm very grateful. Oh, that's good. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I don't know that the State Department has the reputation of being cool the way yeah. the CIA does because of movies, because of Argo, whatever. Yeah. What's your pitch to young people listening, why they should join the Foreign Service, why it's a meaningful, exciting career? First of all, you get to live all over the world. Yeah. I mean, what's cooler than that? Now, you may get sent to some place you don't want to go, and (laughs) some of the places are really tough to live in, Mm -hmm. but it is experiencing the world. It's just amazing. Even if you're a brand new Foreign Service officer and you're sitting on the visa line in a country, you are absorbing everything in that country, what it's like to live someplace else, how other people think. We all live in a world that's so interconnected and so close. You have to know what else is going on outside of your own little world. And it gives you a chance to do that. Mm -hmm. The State Department's gotten better, because it needs to, about giving people more agency, more ability to do cool things. Mm -hmm. I certainly had a lot of young people who worked with me on the Iran negotiation who were my control officers. That means the person who sort of follows you around and makes sure all your logistics work. It's a great title. But yeah, controlling me, right? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, good luck. Uh, But that person, the way I did things, got to sit in on everything. That's great. When we had team meetings at the beginning of the morning at the Palais Coburg in Vienna, those last 27 days, that control officer sat in on the meeting. That's a cool meeting. They got to hear all the inside stuff. Yeah. And they were, you know, a first tour career foreign service officer. Mm -hmm. The civil servants at the State Department are equally terrific. And a lot of the new areas like climate, economics, nonproliferation are a lot of civil servants Mm -hmm. because they've learned that and they aren't the generalists that some of the IR, International Relations Foreign Service guys are and gals. Uh, So I hope people come in. The president won't always be president. If they come in now, by the time they're in a place to make a real difference because they're the policymakers, life will be very different. We need them. Yeah. yeah, I think there's a huge opportunity for the next president to kind of take advantage of all this energy that has been building in the country and kind of galvanize a new influx of people in public service, whether in the foreign service or other parts of the government or in the peace We Corps. should have national service yeah. in this country. Yeah. We should, because kids do it anyway. You know, whether you take that as a gap year before you go to college and yeah. do some service or you do it after college, it's fantastic. Yeah. Last nerdy question that I forgot to ask you before. President Trump has decided apparently to pull out of the INF Treaty, which is a nonproliferation treaty that presumably will keep us 
from a nuclear war with the Russians. What do you make of that decision? And how concerned are you about the broader nonproliferation regime and arms control regime being unwound by Trump and Pompeo and Bolton? I'm very concerned about it. You know, NATO has supported him in saying that within six months he will formally withdraw, but has announced the suspension of the INF Treaty, which is about cruise missiles of a certain range Mm -hmm. and certain kind of cruise missiles and uh, ground-based launchers. And the reason it's a problem is once you get rid of the treaty, you've started an arms race again. And you basically are saying that we can develop weapons, which means that Russia will develop more weapons, which means China will develop more weapons. And Senator Chris Murphy, I thought, put it well. Just because someone breaks a law, you don't throw the law out. Good point. (laughs) So why are we throwing out a treaty because uh, Russia has, in fact, not fully complied with it? We need to keep as many constraints on proliferation as we possibly can. So to me, it makes no sense that we would pull out. I think we are ultimately going to put NATO in a really tough position and Europe in a really tough position, because my sense is that at the end of the day, in six months, Trump will withdraw completely. And that is going to be terribly dangerous for Europe, because you're basically saying, Russia, do whatever you want. Yeah. The book is Not for the Faint of Heart, Lessons in Courage, Power, and Persistence. Wendy Sherman, thank you so much for coming to visit uh, Crooked Media HQ. I'm sorry that yeah. my little fluffy dog barked at you for some reason. She barked at Ben on the way, and yeah, I don't know what's... a little cranky time. Something uh, <laughs> stuck on her craw today, but we'll sort it all out. Well, I just, I just want your listeners to know that these two guys worked really hard in government. Sometimes they were a pain in the ass. Yeah, true. Yeah. But really cool guys, and as somebody who's just slightly a whole lot older than no, they no. are. <laughs> They're pretty cool. Well, we learned a lot. Thanks, guys. Thank you. And yeah. everyone should read the book and then join the Foreign Service. Yeah, it's a deal. It'll be fun. Yeah. yeah. No big deal. Do it. <laughs> cool. <laughs> Thanks, All right, Thanks, Thanks, guys. Thanks again for tuning in to Pod Save the World. Share this bad boy with your friends. Rate and review us in the iTunes store. And I hope you enjoyed the little Puff Daddy Easter egg. Have a good one. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. (laughs) 